Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. I'm your Theo. Theo, for everyone out there listening who might not know who you are, can you please introduce yourself? Well, I'm uh, Theo Walters. I've been an engineer all my life. Uh, in the last 10 years, I'm mostly uh, occupied with uh, following the debate on energy, climate, and economy. And I'm a frequent blogger, uh, give lots of presentations, uh, write in some of the magazines. So um, that's my main uh, activity nowadays. So I want to ask, why is climate such a debatable topic? Why is it something where it seems like, for me, from what I've noticed, and look, I'm, you're talking to someone who's talked to people from renewable energies, from hydro, solar, every single one you can possibly think of, for people who are geologists, environmentalists, paleontologists, who will tell you 100% the earth is warming. And then I have a friend who's a climate skeptic that says, no, this is just a natural process of, of it. I look at it like it's all gotten into politics a little bit. Um, it seems like nobody can get over the hurdle of is the earth warming or not. So my idea of where I want to tackle and where I kind of go with it is let's drop that subject and let's go to the renewable energy topic. I'm not saying we have to on this one. I'm just saying that's what I see, like everyone can kind of speculate a little bit past the hurdle of that one thing that nobody can agree on. It seems like that's more political. So I'm just curious with your dive into the climate debate. What have you noticed? Well, it, uh, the, the, the matter of climate change has become completely politicized, especially in the, in the United States. Uh, but it, uh, it kind of, uh, we, we in Europe, we follow that. And uh, there's, well, we have now come to the point that there is no debate anymore. You know, there's uh, all uh, television programs, uh, the, the, the eight o'clock news, they just um, give a, a floor to everyone who says that climate is uh, in a crisis and we are going to die. So th th there is no debate anymore. Ten years ago, they would feel obligated to uh, invite a, a skeptic to if there was a discussion, but they stopped doing that a few years ago. So in that way, we lost the discussion and there's no debate anymore. And I don't think in the United States there's a debate anymore either. The, the, the two parties don't want to meet anymore. Why do you think that it was like, because I, I noticed that too, and I, I've heard Bill Maher even speak about it, where it's like, when is it warming if it's warming? And then it's not even the subject of warming, but it's just the fact of like, just yelling and saying it's going to die tomorrow seems to be like the pressure on the gas as a society, at least in the States. That's kind of how we've been focused is like to freak people out, which I just tack, I look at that like, we're not good, like long game people at all. Like society, the world, human species just was never good at a problem that ex existed over a long period of time. But I mean, the climate topic since I was a kid has been something that has always been like, you need to do something now or the planet's not going to be here tomorrow. And I think we all know the environmentalist rallies and everything like that, which I think is a good fight. I think, yeah, let's save the earth, you know, that type of thing. But I also think you need to have like a rational discussion about things too. It can't just be like it a hundred percent needs to cut off this and do that and that's what i've kind of seen in a lot of people that voice these are government officials they're celebrities they're all these types of people and i go they were just caught 
flying on a private jet. You were like, it just, you, you can't, you can't have it both ways. You can't have the people that are singing the sweet praises of we need to save the earth be doing the wrong things that they're criticizing other people for. Yeah, well, that's, that's exactly what's going, what's happening in the World Economic Forum. You know, they fly in with a few hundreds of jets and they say the world is getting worse. So people have to pay more for their energy and then they fly back. You know, that's uh, that's more or less how it is nowadays. Um, there's no explanation for it. You know, the, scientifically, there's nothing clear about climate. You know, the the nobody knows what causes climate change. You know, the, of course, the Earth has warmed for about one degree the last century, which is a moderate warming and which is beneficial for everybody. Uh, but nobody knows if, it, if this is caused by greenhouse gases. Probably for a part it is, but nobody knows. That, that's where it starts. You know, when you talk about climate, you always have to realize that there are two realities. There's one reality of the laws of physics and uh, observations. I'm an engineer, so all my life I worked with that. And when we do a model, we know pretty damn sure that a bridge is going to hold or a, a, an airplane is going to fly. You know, that's that's the kind of work we do based on laws of physics and, and, and measurements. But then in the climate science, you have another reality, and that's the reality of the climate models. And those models, they cannot predict anything. The makers of the models don't say they predict anything. They say we project because that's exact, exactly what these models are. They are projections. So they're kind of a scenario and they have like thousands of parameters and they, they tweak these parameters so they can mimic the, the warming of the last few decades. And then they say, well, let's see what happens in this projection in the future. But that doesn't mean that they put in the parameters in the right way, you know? So the, those models, they never... Uh, um, agree with observations and they always spell doom because what you put in comes out and they but that's what what the whole scare is based on on models not on science science is not settled you know that that's they they they, they are screaming that all the time but nothing is less true than that the science is not science doesn't know much about climate actually nobody knows why climate has been warming every thousand years about um, 10,000 years now you know, every thousand years we have a few degrees warming and now it's exactly thousand years ago so this is the time where we should have two degrees warming so that's it seems to be completely natural but if, since nobody knows what what caused the warming the last few times they cannot tell what what's causing it now might maybe co2 has something to do with it but it, you know it's it's pretty um, you know logic that a big a big part of the present warming is just natural natural nobody knows what was your i guess awakening into this like when did you get started um talking about the whole i know you said like 10 years ago but like was there a specific moment that shifted you because even with me if you mentioned the warm or the words like global warming or if you mention any of this stuff i started thinking the earth's on fire i start thinking a bunch of things and it, it I mean, for a lot of people, I, they don't really want to dive. And honestly, this has been a more politically charged topic than I've ever talked about. And I've dealt with like the most controversial figures about COVID. So like this one was just like something that was kind of new to me where it was like, 
I get it from a rational standpoint. I think everyone wants to care about future generations and making sure that this earth is sustainable, but also at the same time, it can't just be so emotionally charged on so many fields. And I think that's where a lot of the conversation really got lost. And I mean, there's a large amount of people out there that don't even talk about the topic, don't want to do anything about it, don't really care for it because it's just, it's more stress. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my, I, I started on energy. I'm an engineer, so I wanted to contribute to a better world. So I started to work on sustainable energy and on improving uh, combustion engines and making fuel cells, stuff like that, like 20 years ago. Um, so I worked with hydrogen. I still have a, a hydrogen factory in my garden. <laughs> um, and then suddenly in 2005, I think, this hydrogen economy became a big hype. Now I was working with hydrogen, so I knew that was a very bad idea. So and then I started to um, to um, you know get into the debate about uh, the new energy. So, well, I'm working on a better energy structure, but you shouldn't choose hydrogen as an energy carrier. That's the worst one we have, you know. So that's how I got interested in the debate, and I immediately uh, stumbled upon the the political side of it. So I was. Uh, not often allowed to speak on conferences and stuff like that because I was a critic and they didn't like that. You know, everybody wanted to have this hydrogen economy at that time. It it went away uh, pretty fast, but now it's back. You know, so uh, that was my reason to get into the debate in on the energy side. And in 2010, we got the Climate Gate emails, who were leaked from um, from the a big climate institute, and they were making very clear that the top climate scientists did everything to uh, keep uh, criticism out of the loop and out of the papers. So whenever we said something, they said, well, we don't believe you because it's not peer reviewed. And uh, we said, well, we are good scientists. Yeah, but you're not peer reviewed. But when we entered an article at a big magazine, they made sure it, it was not accepted. So they, they kept us from scientific literature. And um, that was proven in these emails. So then the debate uh, really began, in my view, because now we had um, proof that we were um, uh, you know, take, uh, keep, kept out of the loop and out of the debate. So then, then I started to get interested in, uh, in, in uh, climate science, and I started to make my own climate models. Uh, I really wanted to understand how the greenhouse effect worked. I published, uh, publicized them and uh, talked to a lot of, of uh, scientists of both uh, camp. So um, then I got into uh, into climate through these uh, through energy, actually. And when I well, I was going to say, so what's the purpose of like with climate models? Are they having a bias somewhere? Like I can see it like if you start like if you're doing a projection on something, if you project that it's going to go a certain way, you can really manipulate that graph based on uh, a different one that would be from a science model or one from basic evidence. I mean, if you talk about the concept of human humans having an impact on their environment we can say yes but to what degree and then ne next you know that climate model will shift but even with the climate gate emails i had a buddy on here pull up some of the climate gate emails and it's people that were publicly saying something and then privately saying something different and i start wondering i go show me your receipts man like can i see your receipts like are you being funded by like because i've re like i said i've i've tried to talk we're going to talk about energies i gotta know because um i have a couple stances on that where i'm like i used to think differently but i've talked to so many people where i've been sit back and forth with it when i go to reach out to someone about fossil fuels and i see on their website 
that their main funder is ExxonMobil, I don't trust it. I don't. I don't trust anything you say. But the weird thing is ExxonMobil is a giant funder in a lot of the environment movement stuff where I start going, wait, so is this an ethical company or are they just paying people so they can pass what they want passed and then put restrictions on other things? Like, I think these are all really good, like things to think about when you're looking into this topic. Yeah, well, they're accusing us of being funded by fossil fuels all the time. Well, we never saw a penny in, in in Europe, at least, and in America, there are some groups who are funded by uh, free speech organizations, and they usually get money from right wing people who are somehow connected to uh, to fossil fuels. But mind you, if you look at the United States, you will find maybe a few ten thousands, maybe hundred thousands of, of of dollars. But if you look at our opponents. All of them are paid for their opinion. They all have a job, which is depending on their own uh, their view on climate change. They're all professors in climate change, or they're people in, in the government working for climate change. So the money spent on climate change is, is uh, hundreds of billions. And that's the whole industry. And, and then they accuse us, us of being uh, wrong because we are funded by someone. You know, they are funded by someone. <laughs> so I don't, I don't see the problem here in the funding. But you're very right. Look, always look at who is paying for the for the research to to understand it. Uh, well, I'm completely independent. I've had, I've had my own company my whole life. Uh, I've never been uh, working for anybody else but myself. I have no interests. I have my own money. Uh, so I, I'm completely independent on, on energy and climate, and uh, you can you can kind of trust what I say. You know that's. <laughs> well, would would you have anything against if information came out or science came out that the Earth was being warmed by fossil fuels or something like that? Like, would you have any negativity towards that, or you just want to see the science behind it? Uh, I want to see the science behind it. Actually, I started as an alarmist in in 2000 and. Uh, seven, I was asked to give a big lecture about um, uh, my uh, sustainable activities for the engineering um, society in Holland. Um, I, I was allowed to talk the whole night. Uh, and I said, and they, they asked, tell me about your uh, sustainable activities uh, and tell me, uh, tell us about um, Kyoto, which was the predecessor of the Paris Agreement. You know, we had the Kyoto Agreement where the whole world promised to, uh, to uh, reduce CO2 emissions. And after that, CO2 emissions only went up higher. Um, but I was a, a, a real big proponent. So I was planning to give a lecture telling you now, this is the last time anyone will uh, emit any CO2. So I was a real alarmist. But then I started to do research for this lecture. And I found out that all the things that I wanted to, to show the proof of didn't have any proof. And actually they were wrong. So I was completely um, uh, confused. It took two years for me to accept the fact that I, I'm a skeptic because the, in the beginning, I thought I must be wrong. No. So my whole lecture was question marks. This is what everybody says, but this is what I find. And after two years, my lecture finally had um, exclamation marks. So then I knew what I found, but I, it took me two years to admit to myself that I was wrong as an alarmist. So I understand how the people feel who don't agree with me. Well, where are you located right now? Because if I'm in the States, like, is it just, are you looking at an outside view looking in, like at, like what the States is going on? You see, it's completely different from where you're located. Um, you don't have to give me your exact location. 
Oh, I'm in Delft in Holland. Okay, so are you looking at like, is it different in Holland? Is it as politically charged over there as it is over here? Is it is the whole climate topic and energy topic just kind of uh, locked in with business in a sense, and it's kind of completely ruined? Well, there's a big difference. It wasn't politicized uh, ten years ago in Europe. We had uh, people of all political directions being skeptics. And in the United States, it's always been connected to free, freedom of speech. So the, the, the right wing, uh, the, the, the Republicans in the United States, they were against climate policies because they said it's only meant to take our freedom away. And the left wing peoples, the, the Democrats, they were really uh, wanting to save the world and they wanted to have more government. So it's always in the more government, less government political arena in the United States. And they were like, almost completely separated over the political lines. That was not the case in, in Europe 10 years ago. And now you can see that the, the political left and the political middle uh, both became uh, alarmist and only the political right is still uh, skeptical. And it's, it starts to get this divide. So the, the, the right parties uh, in general, now uh, feel that uh, we the, the the measurements we take to uh, to fight climate change are a lot worse than the climate change itself. So that's how it's um, how it's now in Europe. So there is a difference. Well, if you don't agree with the narrative of climate change that the Earth is uh, changing and it is humans that are impacting it, you get called a denier or you get called a right winger. And then if you're on the other side, you're left and then you want government policies and government to control everything. Now, I'm not a big government guy at all, but I'm also not right or left. I don't I didn't even vote in the politics. But what I thought was interesting was when Biden made a statement about gas prices. He's like, you're just gonna have to deal with it. Stop complaining about it. And then it was Bezos that said something. And it was like, that's a highly liberal like very like a big tech billionaire type person that just criticized Biden and like these energy policies that are going in. And he's been blaming the price of gas being on Ukraine. Well, I haven't seen the news report on Ukraine in a while now. It seems like that topic or the peak of it has kind of died down where I start going, is this just the shift to get everybody onto electric cars? Because not even six, seven months ago, he was inviting all these people that agreed with his energy policy, who were the main producers of electric cars. And I go, I don't like I don't think electric's the answer. I think it's a combination of renewable energies. And I go, but you're forcing people to get off fossil fuels. And one perspective I did hear about was that there's countries that are less developed that would get a giant boost from using fossil fuels to be able to get their society up and moving to find a more renewable energy. I agree with that. I also agree with the fact that I don't think you need to rely on fossil fuels anymore. I think it's time to start talking about a new renewable source, something that would be better for the environment and safer for the environment if we talk about that long term. But I also don't trust nuclear, man. I really don't. I just I understand like the energy.gov says nuclear is the way to go, but I don't think nuclear is bad. I just look at how many nuclear facilities in the states do we have that are 30 years past expiration date, like when they're supposed to be checked and monitored. I, I factor in human errors being the issue. A lot of these problems and topics boil down to human error when it comes to the climate policies, when it comes to all these things. It's all human factor stuff that makes it all end up going bad. We end up manipulating something to try and fit our favor, and it doesn't age well. 
Well, you said a lot of things. Yeah. Um, I don't think that uh, that that Biden is uh, pushing up the, the the energy prices with a, an agenda. I don't think that. You know, if if you have a, a crisis somewhere in the world, um, production of oil and gas is 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 not variable. You know, it's and and the, the use is also not very variable. You know, if even if it got it gets more expensive, people have to drive to work and people need electricity. So if you have a, a only a very small um, dismatch between production and and use, prices skyrocket or plummet. Uh, and now we have a war. Um, Russia is uh, is not giving any uh, gas to. Uh, well, Ru Europe didn't want any more gas from Putin, uh, which means that they have to buy it somewhere else. So now the Europeans are buying gas and oil everywhere in the world. So prices go up, and and this means that we are getting a lot of oil and gas from Asia. So Asia is now buying with Putin. Because we have the same producers and we have the same users. Only if the West uh, doesn't buy any more um, Russian gas, we we are going to go to the world market and increase prices. So I don't think Biden has much to do with it. It's market. So that was uh, I think that was one thing you said. And then nuclear energy. Um, in my view, that's absolutely the only way to get rid of uh, fossil fuels. And uh, mind you, we are still after 30 years of sustainable energy development and hundreds of billions invested, uh, that's still like three or 4% of our energy supply. And our energy supply is growing with about, you know, two, 3% per year. So um, fossil fuel in percentage is going a bit down, a few percent, but in absolute uh, production, Fossil fuels are still increasing a lot every year, and that's going to to um, continue at least for for three decades. So in 2050, we'll have more fossil fuel than now, even if uh, sustainable energy tenfold uh, the, the the present level. So sustainable the, the increase in sustainable energy is not as big as the increase in energy use, which means that there's there's no way we can. Um, reduce our our world CO2 emissions. There's just no way unless we stop China, India, Africa, and uh, South America from developing. You know, they they are Europe and America are, are like 20% of the energy use, and in in 30 years from now we're 10% we of it all. So whatever we do doesn't matter at all. It matters if the the, the poor people in Asia and Africa. If they uh, are going to pay a lot more uh, money for the energy to make it sustainable, or that they're just going to use um, fossil fuels, and I can tell you the answer: they're going to use fossil fuels. Is there, um, with any of these climate projections, is there any like maybe hypothetical ideas of what happens if we got renewable energies or if we got a more uh, sustainable energy than fossil fuels? Because I always hear that the conversation boil down to getting rid of fossil fuels, but then I never hear the answer of what we should replace it with. I hear ideas. And like I said, I bring up nuclear, but I mean, we had a, a nuclear policy. We were saying that it wasn't going to be a, a green energy, a clean energy. Then Germany gets rid of all of their nuclear 
nuclear facilities. I think their last one just recently shut down, if I'm not wrong, um, this past year. And then we switched it over to now nuclear is a green energy. And then like they're kind of screwed out of the gambit where I just go, I'm not a conspiracy person, but that's a political move if I've ever seen one. Well, Germany is a very special uh, country, and um, their psychology made them very anti-nuclear. Um, and now they're in, in big trouble, and they're opening a, a coal power plants and even lignite power plants uh, to um, to replace the nuclear power plants. So their CO two emissions have have they spent uh, already more than five hundred billion on sustainable energy and it's a country with 80 million people you know so that's a huge amount but they still have more co2 emissions than they did in the past because they are closing down their nuclear power plants that it's it's not rational what they're doing and those plants are really they are perfect they can go on for 30 to 50 years from now on and they, they're closing them down just for their psychological reasons you know and um uh, and now they're in big trouble and you know, our left-wing Dutch politicians, they, uh, they plan to, um, to help them out with uh, natural gas if they need it. And I, I'm saying, well, don't give them anything, you know, let them open up, uh, keep those last few uh, nuclear plants open. That's much more. We are planning to build new power, uh, nuclear power plants in Holland. At least two, now probably already four just to, to make sure we have enough electricity. And, and our neighbors, you know, it's only 20 kilometers from our borders, they're closing down a perfectly new nuclear power plant. It's crazy. Well, wasn't it like not even that long ago, there was no talk about nuclear energy, at least from the general public's observation of it, at least mine, uh, for instance, it was always like a fear. And then I remember pulling it up. Um, I think it was in January. I pulled up energy.gov when I was talking to my environmental historian friend. And I was like, well, what's the answer? And then on their website, they clearly listed that nuclear energy was an effective method. And I was like, well, when did this topic start changing? And now you're seeing more talks about nuclear energy where before the public's idea of it was like, you're going to grow a third eye on your head. Now it's like, well, we can talk about it and it actually might be beneficial where I'm like, did it just take all our government officials to jump on board one thing and shove it in everybody's face for the idea to change? Well, now I'm I'm going to uh, give you a very personal, um, you know, idea which may be complete nonsense. But in my view, as an engineer, I look at at people at uh, as mechanisms, and uh, we are uh, wired to be scared of one thing. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, then we focus and we we leave all rational. Uh, we we quit rationality. We are panicking, and that's the only thing. If you want people to do what you want, you scare them first, and then tell them what to do. Then they, because if they're scared, they stop thinking. Now, for decades, the environmentalist movement has pushed nuclear as the big enemy. They used all kinds of crazy uh, arguments. None of them hold. Um, it's the safest and cheapest form of energy. So, um, but the people were scared and they stayed scared. Whatever you told them, no rational arguments did did matter. Now, uh, 20 years ago, they started to uh, scare people with climate change. 
and they were very successful. And now everybody is afraid of climate change. But that means they cannot be uh, afraid of uh, nuclear anymore because you can only have one big scare. And uh, you, so you see, in the, even in the environment movement, uh, you see the, uh, you know, people like James Hansen, who is a, a, an extreme activist on climate. He says, we're never going to save the world with so solar and, and wind. It's, it's going to be too late. We need to switch to nuclear now. We have to build thousands of nuclear power plants. And he's an, he's an extreme climate alarmist. You know, and uh, you see Michael Schellenberg, who was an alarmist too. First, he switched to saying, well, we need uh, nuclear energy. Uh, and then after a few years, he even said, well, I don't think this climate problem is as big as I thought. I apologize for scaring all of you. You know, he's, uh, he's a big guy, Michael Schellenberg from the, the eco-modernists. Uh, so you see a lot of, of people in the, in the climate movement uh, who were our opponents for 20 years now are our friends in saying well we need more nuclear energy because i'm i'm a pro nuclear to uh, to make sure that you understand um but to replace fossil fuels with nuclear power plants we need about 20,000 huge nuclear power plants and countries like uh, nigeria they would need uh, about uh, you know 500 to 1000 at least in the jungle you know, so this is not something you can do easily. It will take many, many years. And I would not be um, uh, in favor of using the present nuclear technology to build so many new power plants. What we need to do is restart building the, the present designs who are really safe and really good. Uh, so we got an industry again and at the same time innovate. And then, of course, uh, the, the fourth generation of nuclear power plants. They have a few uh, designs who are uh, intrinsically safe and, uh, and, and um, use thorium as a, as a uh, fuel, which we have plenty of, and they don't produce, even produce long uh, living uh, nuclear waste. So they're kind of nuclear without the, the defects. <laughs> uh, and so we think we should develop that. And then in 20 years, start building huge amounts of inherently safe uh, nuclear power plants who don't produce any long-lasting waste you know then then you can really start um, uh, replacing all the, the the fossil fuel plants well it's the importance of uh leveling out the discourse or elevating the discourse from the is the earth warming subject to what's the renewable energy subject because whatever renewable energy be the renewable energy that we go with the more time you build up nuclear facilities you're going to spend more time researching it as well too and make it more effective and actually safer but right now with the technology like you're saying what we have it's not sustainable or it's not good to have so many thousands of those plants all over the place because of a factor of we don't have the technology that's capable of handling that to the measure that we needed that it, it, this is what the thing is it's like we're as much as we bicker or talk about the subjects or the climate subject is bickered around or debated, it's just wasting time for the factor of we could already have nuclear energy going at the level that we needed at. We could already have solar energy at the level that we needed at. Now, there are complications. I'm not saying I'm just giving an example, but I'm just saying like with cells or whatever microchips, I mean, they were talking about using solar panels and then there was a microchip shortage and now there's issues with AI and there's like all this stuff. I'm like, it's because we're not we're, we're all over the place. We need to like 
ground in one thing, but that's the hardest part is that with the subject getting politicized as well, too, you have so many people that want to see it head in this certain direction. And I'm like, eventually we're going to reach the spot where we need to do something and we're not going to be able to do something, whether you want to agree if it's a climate uh human warming issue or not but it's just a factor of we do when i look at fossil fuels i don't look at it from a, a warming factor i look at it from a, a how many of these fossil fuels do we have i have friends that worry about um there's topics when it comes to ancient sediment that's in the bottom of the seafloor. They go, that's a good source. And my buddy who studies that goes, that's took millions of years to build up and it will be gone if we use it as like the main source in like a total of 50 to 100 years. He goes, and then we don't have any more. So imagine millions of years of buildup that gets wiped out in 50 to 100 years. And I go, yeah, but don't you think they would just switch over to another topic? And then, you know, eyes roll and people want to give up on the conversation, which I get it. I, I think it's this is an important what me and you are having and what others should be having as well, too, is an important discourse to be talking about, because I want to know what you can give me and what you could give other people like you do, maybe in a presentation or lecture, some just important things that people should keep aware of and also important things that maybe people can look up on their own. Uh, well, first of all, um, there, there, there could be three reasons for uh, this energy transition to away from fossil fuels. First is climate. Well, we, I hope we'll, we'll get to that uh, later, but uh, there's no climate crisis. There's no climate emergency. No, nothing points to that. In fact, we are doing really fine. If you look at uh, the, the physics and at the observations, only in the models there's doom and, and bad things. So if you believe reality, we have nothing to worry about for at least uh, 50 years, and we only have to worry about replacing fossil fuels in the next century. Um, so that this urgency is uh, is not very uh, clear. You know, I hope we can come back to that. No, well, let's, do, let's, let's expand upon it now. Let's do it. Yeah. Well, I'll mention the other ones and then we'll go in, in three of them. Okay. The second uh, argument for the transition is that uh, fossil fuels run out. They don't. Nobody knows it, but uh, since we found uh, oil and since we found natural gas, we've used an enormous amount of them. Every year we use more, but every year the reserves get bigger. What? So the more we take out of the ground, we have never have mo had more reserves in oil and gas than we have now. In the last 10 years, the, 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 the supplies have, even the reserves have grown much faster than what we use. So there's no end to fossil fuels for hundreds of years to come. How do we keep, how do we keep getting more? Are we finding it like in the ocean or something like on an oil rig or something? Well, whenever the oil companies have a certain turnover and they need to have reserves for um, the coming five to 10 years. So if they, if if they run low on, uh, on reserves, they explore. They go to places to, to, to look for new oil and they find it. And if they have uh, oil they find, but it's, it's difficult to, uh, to process, then they develop technology to take it out of the ground. So recently, yes, we um, in America has seen, uh, was on the point of uh, ha having to close down all its oil sources. You know, the, it was in a, in a steep decline and they were building import uh, harbors for natural gas. Uh, but suddenly shale technology became a lot better 
And then they, all these huge amounts of shale oil and shale gas got available for a very low price. Now America is a big exporter. So all those terminals that were built for importing natural gas are now exporting. So the whole world has seen an enormous amount uh, rise in, in uh, reserves because now we can uh, exploit shale oil and shale gas in a cheap way. That, that doubled our, our reserves. So we, we get, we get uh, and that happens all the time, technology and new founds and exploration always find, you know, the more we use, the more the oil companies have to explore and the more they find and the more we have as a, as a reserve. So that's the second one. And the third one is uh, the, we don't want to depend on um, the bad regimes like Russia and Saudi Arabia. But that problem is also solved because we found oil, gas, and coal all over the world recently. Uh, so we none of the three arguments really matter. But you wanted to start with the first one. Well, I also want to on the on the second one. When it comes to technology, is there a constant increase in at least the uh, at least the curiosity of trying to discover new sources? Because actually, when I was looking into the mining topic to look at, talk about like mining, because I have a buddy who um, he's an ecologist, but he also did a bunch of books about sustainable mining, which I had never heard of. And a lot of these were taking care of the capacity that these mines have. A lot of the issues that people have with mining or fracking is because the way that these people leave these mines when they're done with it they leave them in crappy capacities that degrade the land over time and he talked about there's ways to make more sustainable forms of mining that's um area of research and study of they're increasing that capacity to understand more about how to mine effectively without completely destroying or affecting any neighboring places and i think that's that's only something that a company would do if there's a curiosity for innovation so i'm just curious when you when we talk about oil if, for instance are they having a fear that's pushing them to want to try and find better ways to improve their technology or is there just a general curiosity to get like some environmentalists or other companies or scrutiny off their back to be able to do their business and job or whatever they're paid to do effectively without getting scrutiny from the, the media? I, I don't know all companies, but Shell is really determined to, uh, to mine in a, in, a in a safe and environmentally friendly way. Um, in, uh, but there, there are old projects where they don't uh, succeed in that. You know, the, the, the whole uh, uh, Nigeria uh, question is really, really bad. The, they, uh, they, they have polluted a lot there, also because of sabotage of local people, but they, man they don't manage to get that clean. But in the rest, you know, they, they try the utmost to prevent accidents and to, um, and to keep it clean and environmentally friendly. And the way you leave your mind, that's a government issue. You know, in Canada, they have huge mining and it's completely destructive for the, for the environment. But the companies leave the environment uh, as good as it was before they were there. During the mining, it's a complete disaster, but then they reconstruct the old ways and nature can go ahead in Alberta. And it's very good for their economy. So the, the Canadians do it in, a, they, I think they do it in a pretty good way. Um, so I, I, you, you cannot mine without damage, you know, but how many, you know, a nuclear plant needs some concrete and some steel, but not much more. Uh, oil and gas also don't need very much. And then if you drill a hole, you can take out huge amounts of oil and, and, and gas. In shale, it's less, you need more holes, but normally you dig, dig a hole and you can take out gas or oil for 20 years. 
So the, the damage is very limited to the amount of energy that you can produce. But if you look at solar and wind, this is very diluted energy. So you need huge, huge um, installations to get a little bit of energy. And the, the amount of concrete and, and steel that's in one wind turbine and the amount of um, rare earth elements that are in there are, is huge, it's many tons. And they are all produced in China in a very, very um, um, uh, polluting way and with very dangerous pollution also. So you know, all the rare earth elements that you really need for sustainable energy are the, uh, a far bigger uh, mining problem than we have with oil and gas. That's, I, that's, I know with uh, wind and uh, uh, solar uh, power, people like that energy, but they necessarily don't want to see it there. Like I know there was a lot of issues with people seeing turbines. They'd rather it be placed somewhere where they don't have to see it, but they want to benefit from the power of so, which I always bring up the point. What do you think about ideas of like in, in a United States basis or even a country basis that you had um, – countries regulate their energy source based on what is fit for that area because one thing i noticed when i went on like energy.gov is that when they would complain about like the issues with hydropower or something they would look at issues in another country like for if i'm in the united states looking at hydropower it'll say well a, a dam in china cost over this much amount of money and this much of this and i'm like why are we examining china's climate compared to the united states i mean they, they can be similar in some aspects sure but overall that's a whole different basis of geographical location yeah still i think that's the way to go if, if you want to solve a global problem you have to look at the whole world and now we are we are spending in europe we're going to spend about um, but who's talking energy climate in China? That's what I want to know. I know some people that are trying to find effective ways to deal with policy over there, but everything I see is like everyone in the, at least in, in the United States, it's all about fighting and making sure that we're doing the right thing. I'm like, yeah, but if you mentioned we're only producing 20% of whatever between two countries, then what about the other countries? I mean, how do you expect to make them fall in line? I don't see China and Russia um, agreeing to some type of energy policy suggestion. Exactly. So if we if you're going to spend 2000 billion uh, euros on climate measures and in that and we reduce our, our emissions with 50 percent on the on world scale, that's 10 percent. But you cannot expect people in China or Africa to spend 10,000 euros per family per, per year on sustainable energy. They, they cannot spend hundreds uh, dollars per year on, on sustainable energy. So whatever we do. It only makes sense if we can export it to the poor countries, if they can do the same. And if, if they can't, it's no use. So that's why I think nuclear is a solution because it can be cheap and countries like Korea and China and Russia are, are building lots of nuclear power plants at the moment. And that's the way for them to keep um, uh, their energy prices low. Uh, so th that is a solution. So in my view, we should develop this fourth generation thorium uh, molten salt reactor technology and export it to these countries so they have safe and, and very cheap um, nuclear power in the future. That's, that's something you can do if you want to solve the problem of the world. You cannot, uh, you cannot solve the problems of the world if you spend huge amounts of money in a few rich countries in a way that cannot be reproduced in the poor countries because we are only 10, 10 50, uh, Europe is 10% of the world's energy 
consumption. So you can only do this if you are, um, it's a, it only makes sense if what we do can be, um, can be uh, taken over by the rest of the world. And what we do now cannot be taken over by the rest of the world. So CO2 emissions will continue to rise. We will not see any change in climate, uh, uh, in climate whether CO2 is the cause or not, because CO2 is going to keep on uh, increasing. It's, there's no way uh, that uh, in 2050, we'll, we will um, uh, have more than 50% of our uh, energy supply of the world um, in a sustainable uh, way. It's, it's, it's a myth. I, um, I think the talking point that I always hear was that if we lead by example, everyone else will fall in line. And I kind of just go, that's never worked throughout history in anything that we've ever done before. But what do you think about the idea of carbon capture? Of like, there's ideas, at least from what I've heard, and I've listened to Steve Coonan on Joe Rogan, which is like he has a very rational take, even though some people can disagree. And I think Andrew Dressler has some points as well, too, on some things. But also, he talks about carbon capture and like he'll start into a topic and then he'll give up on it. And I go, but what about this idea of he talked about pumping carbon into the earth? And I've talked to someone who studies like the Earth's core and studies the magnetic field of Earth. And he just like he did not want to entertain that idea at all. And I get it. You're not going to have everybody fall in line with it. But I mean, is that even a possibility? I know we use trees sometimes to suck up some carbon, but that's also an issue because when those trees catch on fire, they release it right back into it's kind of like a storage thing where i start going i mean is there any types of met are we gonna to have to do the bill gates method where we launch a missile into our atmosphere to dissipate particles to dim the sun i have no clue but this is this is my fear this is why i wanted to talk about this was because you have issues like that where if bill gates tossed that idea out now with the amount how many people are freaked out about climate that seems like a very plausible choice where I start going, even though if you're making a decision in life or you're making a political decision, you hold a lot of power to your words. If you tell people the earth is going to die tomorrow and the oceans are all going to flood, there's a very big danger in warning like that, whether it's true or not. If you're just warning it to get people to hurry up and get motivated to do something, I understand that. But also understand is that that makes you take risks necessarily that you might not be able to afford those risks right now you know what i'm saying like that's that's a, i feel like that's a rational take on some things yeah absolutely so um, most of us climate realists we are convinced that the present uh, climate policies cause a lot of damage and far more damage than uh, climate change is doing because also something I'll ask you a question. We doubled our CO2 um, concentration in the air in uh, 150 years. We doubled it, you know, from 180, well, 220 to 440. What would you say? Do we have the highest uh, concentration of CO2 in the air in history or the lowest? Uh, we definitely don't have close to the highest. I'm pretty sure when the dinosaurs were around, the climate was depicted as hot and very, very dry. And that was because CO2 emissions were higher. And what we would call an inconvenient truth is that the rise in CO2 actually is very good for green plant life. But I also think people are adapted because all we've known was ice and snow. 
and that's necessarily wasn't here when the dinosaurs roamed. That is something that happened later that when the dinosaurs were wiped out. Yeah, the, the connection between the two is, is not as clear as you say, but uh, really, you, you know a lot more than most people. Uh, we have never had um, uh, as, as low uh, a, car a carbon concentration as we have now. And that is because in the last, uh, last few ice ages, the last million years, um, uh, the concentration of CO2 went down to 180 parts per million, 180. In 150 parts per million, all plants die. So we came very close to total extinction of all life on Earth in the last few ice ages. So after the ice age, it went to 20. So the, the plants start to breathe a little bit. And now we doubled it. So the plants finally can suck up more CO2 because in, as you said, in the time of the dinosaurs, there were five to 10 times more CO2 than now and the world was thriving. Uh, there have been times with very high CO2 a concentration in the air and when the earth was very cold and we have seen low um, parts of, uh, of CO2 and very high temperatures, there's ne never been a, a clear connection between the two. But indeed, in the time of the dinosaurs, um, the, the, the CO2 was much higher and plants were growing much faster. So you, can, uh, so you can afford all those really big animals who eat a few trees a day because everything was growing really rapidly. And now, because of this doubling of CO2, we see a 40, roughly 40% increase in, in, in food crops. Just, and the whole world is green. 90% of the Earth's surface is greening and only 4% is getting drier and, people, and, and, and plants are dying. So CO2 in itself has had a tremendously important good effect. It's very beneficial. So I'm not, I'm not in favor of putting any CO2 in the ground, you know, let's, uh, let's celebrate the good properties of it and that eat all the food that, that it is producing for us. So, and if you really would like to, to, start, to take all the CO2 out of the air and put it in the ground, you have to, um, to realize that it takes a lot of energy to, uh, to sequester uh, CO2 and, and compress it and put it in the ground. So in, instead of reducing your fossil fuel use, you'll increase almost double your, your CO2 your production, and then you have to put twice as much in the ground. So I don't see that as a, as a very, very great solution. Well, what, what, what would be the motivation to talk about CO2 or demonize it as such if it does so much for plant life, if we're able to grow crops better, which I also think is a factor of technology and maybe the equipment we use to be able to gather crops, but it is making the, the, the earth greener, which I just wonder, that sounds like a good thing. I don't understand why carbon gets this giant thing that gets demonized so much where I start thinking, is it because they're worried about floods? Are they worried about ice going away? Or are they just want to find ways that they can inch more power in with government regulations and policies? Well, <laughs> Once again, we, here we have reality and we have, we have two realities. So the reality that you can observe and that you can measure and the reality of the climate models. We have already warmed more than one degree in, in one and a half century. So that's, that's a lot. If two degrees is the end of the world and we are now at more than one, like 1.1 degree Celsius, you know, Fahrenheit is two, I think. Um, 
then the world should be heading close to, <laughs> to a disaster right now. And on the news, you see, well, we have big bushfires in, uh, in Australia, we have big hurricanes, you know, and you can see climate change around you every day. That's not true. If you look at, uh, at all these uh, events, hurricanes, droughts, floods, they, they, there is over the last hundred years, there's no trend. And if there's a trend, it's a, it's a decreasing trend. There's, if you observe, there's nothing. And bushfires are, have a stark decline. You know, there's, there's really, there's an enormous decrease in bushfires. So everything that happens is, is uh, suggested to be um, uh, climate change. But in fact, we don't see anything getting worse because of climate. Only in the models, they predict huge problems in the future. But there's no, no, no proof whatsoever for that. Those models never have uh, failed, uh, have uh, survived the test of observations. All these models have been proven wrong by observations. So there's actually nothing to worry about if you look at the, the climate events we have at the moment. Just to speak on the fires um, scenario, there's a survey from California from 2001 to 2019, where 85% of the fires that happened in California were man-created fires. Those goes down to fires that weren't put out properly at a campsite. Those go to cigarettes. Also, there was a scenario where uh, they social justice Antifa person had, and they actually were a substitute teacher at a school teaching sociology or something, had actually the firefighters during the California fires that were trying to extinguish the flames, they the guy tried to light a fire around the firefighters to get them trapped inside, which is insane. Um, but like th this is all things people hear about and what they hear right after that article is about climate change. And then that's a drastic fear that increases people's chance or idea of wanting to try and get rid of things that cause carbon emissions. And I, I think carbon is a lot of things. I mean, we're carbon. Trees are carbon. There's a lot of carbon out there that there is. I just... I, I don't, I, I don't, I'm like I said, I, these are healthy discussions being you're having. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just bringing in other points, whether it's same side or other side, because that's what I see is people go, why didn't you say this? Or why don't you say that? So I'm like, if I have to challenge something that somebody says, or ask a question and dig deeper, I don't want to just say yes and agree for the safety of an episode. I want to figure the thing out. Cause I think if it's an issue, then we need to talk about the issue, but you know, demonizing it as such to the point where nobody wants to talk about it. And afterwards you feel like you need to sit back and drink a pina colada and relax. Like what, what kind of, what, where are we going to get progress with that? I mean, you mentioned before that one of the first things you talked about climate, is there any, anything you want to go back to? How do you mean? You, you mentioned there was three things you wanted to talk about. And you said you wanted to go back oh, to no, the no, climate no, topic. I, we, we've, we've had, you, you were wondering about climate science and then um, about the, 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 the end, the end of fossil fuels. And I said, there's no, and we didn't talk about the, the dependence on the bad states, but I don't think that's a very important uh, subject. I just said all those three reasons, um, the, the second and the third, and now the, uh, so we, we, we don't have enough fossil fuels and we're depending on bad companies. Those arguments don't go because we have plenty of fossil fuels to go on for many centuries and we have plenty of them in friendly countries. So the only reason you could have for a, um, uh, an energy transition is the climate thing. And then you can see that um, we don't see anything going wrong with one degree warming. 
And that's uh, what we had in a doubling of CO2. And science tells us that's uh, accepted by everybody that um, there is a decrease in the effect of CO2. So if you, uh, the more CO2 you get, the less the effect is. And uh, mathematically that uh, translates into the same amount of warming for every doubling of CO2. So now we doubled from 220 to 440 parts per million. Now we saw a one degree warming in the earth, a bit more. So the next degree of warming we would have if we double from 440 to 880. But that will take a long time in our present emissions because that's a huge step, you know. We now added 220, but then we will have to add 440. And that is, that's going to take a long time. And then we would have the second degree of warming. So if you look at observations and what we actually do, um, that's not, that's not uh, something to worry about. And that is if all the warming comes from CO2. If the warming only is natural, like this thousand year uh, cycle, and only half of it is CO2, then it means that we wouldn't have to worry about climate until the half of the next century. So there's no real, uh, we see that all the events are not increasing. We don't see a really dangerous warming. We don't see an acceleration in sea level rise. So there's actually nothing to, to worry about if you look at the climate facts. But there's one more interesting thing. I just explained to you that all the important climate events that cause casualties, like uh, droughts, uh, floods, um, and heat waves. It killed uh, a lady in Canada. Did you hear about that? No. There was a lady that died in her car. She had diabetes and um, something else, but she was stuck in her car on a 100-degree day and died of like a heart attack or something like that. And on the thing, a scientist or doctor, whoever, uh, put climate change as a secondary cause of death. And this is where I say you have to be careful with, you know, the, the way we talk about topics, because when you over dramatize um, something like this, and I think, like I said, I think it's an area that you need to talk about. It needs to be focused on, but yeah. you also but have to probably get off track. Uh, let me finish this. So we see all these uh, climate events uh, having no increasing trends, even though the temperature has gone up with one degree, we have three times as many people now as we had a century ago. So if the, the events stay the same and the people are three, are three times as many, how many more casualties do you expect there to be from climate events? More people. Well, we have three times as many people and the same amount of disasters. So what do you think about the number of casualties? There'll be more casualties. Yeah, you would say three times as much. It's just, it's just, it's the same thing if I'm riding a bike and I uh, wreck on my bike, I could take two people out on my bike walking down the street or something like that. But if I do the same thing in China, I'll take out 100 people because there's everyone so packed together. That, that, that's, a, that's a different. But if you, if you look at the number of casualties from climate uh, disasters, they have, the last century, they have gone down with 99%. So there's only with the same amount of floods and droughts and uh, hurricanes and sea level rise, the amount of people dying from uh, reasons of climate disasters has dropped to 1% of what it was 100 years ago. And that's not because the climate, climate has changed, but that's because we, are, we have money and technology to, to keep us safe, to adapt to climate change. If you have floods, you build dikes. 
You know, if you have a, a, a heat wave, you have an air conditioner. Uh, and if there's droughts, you transport water. So we, we have technology and money to, to adapt to climate change. And we get getting better in that every year. The first half of the last century, mainly in the rich countries. But the last decades, we see a great improvement in the poor countries, like the same hurricane that struck uh, Sri Lanka uh, 10 years ago, uh, took 10,000 lives. We had a, a completely similar hurricane uh, two years ago, and it only took 30 lives, just because they built uh, refuges and they had a warning system. That, that was the only difference. So the, we are getting very good at adapting to climate change. And so there's no reason to, there's, I don't see how you could ever say that we are in a climate emergency or urgency or climate crisis or climate disaster. Everything is getting a lot better. And the increase in, um, in CO2 combined with a higher temperature is giving us 40% more food. Nature is, is doing very well. So we actually have nothing to worry about. Only that's a message no, not many people will tell you. Could you flip that same thing where you said that even with technology increasing the number of deaths from climate have gone down? Could you flip that the other way too? Like if you have more people, then there should be more deaths, even if you have the same number of climate things. That's what I mentioned with the, about wrecking on my bike, depending on how many people are in that area. But it, I've also talked to a guest who he is part of the voluntary human extinction movement. He actually created it which means to stop having kids. You're brainwashed to think that you should have kids when really you could save the planet if you stop having kids. And I, like I said, there's radicals on both sides and trying to find a healthy balance in the middle, but based on the information that people consume, depending on what you watch, where we talk about the politics again, you can get extreme on either side. I mean, it just really depends on what information you come at, which is just like, is there anybody that's going to any media attention, anything, uh, an actual e eco form, I'd say, that actually would just want to come at it with a more rational perspective of things? Or is that just the um, that's just the odd man out? No, no, the, the, you have the, the uh, eco modernist movement. And those are people who come from the old environmental organizations like uh, like Greenpeace and World Wildlife Fund. But they, they, they came to the conclusion that those big NGOs are like stuck in the past, in ideas from the 70s. And they say, if you look, if you want to go to a better world, uh, the main thing we have to do is decrease our impact on nature. Now, 75% of the world is occupied by people and we're killing most of the biosystems there. So if we manage to intensify our energy, our living, our agriculture, if we manage to intensify that, we can go back to only 50% of the world and we can leave more to nature. Uh, but then you have to accept that you have to intensify um, uh, you know, uh, uh, cattle farms and uh, like we do in Europe and uh, energy like nuclear energy. And you have to um, uh, have food production um, enabled by uh, genetical manipulation which we have done for centuries in a natural way, but you can also speed it up by doing it in a laboratory. And so that, that's their view on the world. So if we intensify the world, it can, it can be a better place for everybody. 
and can be better for the environment too. So they are, they, that's a completely different uh, view on, on the world. And I think that's very inspirational. I, I don't share all their ideas, but um, they definitely are, um, are important. And that's where Michael Schellenberg comes from. He's one of the people who founded that organization. And he, when he became, uh, when the eco-modernist became pro-nuclear, you can see, could see that that was starting to change people in the in the left wing movement too, and in the climate uh, alarmist movement too. They they started to see that uh, that there was a point in intensifying our our um, energy instead of uh, you know taking enormous amounts of of nature. You know, if if you see that we can't find any victims of of climate change. You can find lots of victims of of turbines, wind turbines. You know, they kill huge birds by the dozens every windmill, and they kill uh, thousands of bats and millions of of bugs every year. Every wind turbine does. So the, the, these are there is a wind uh, turbine crisis if you look at the number of casualties and what it does to nature. And if you have these huge solar um, farms in in uh, fertile areas as we have in Europe. You know, you, you have desert, you can put them in the desert. That's okay with me, even though the desert is also an ecosystem with lots of life in it. So whatever you build there in solar panels destroys life. Uh, so, and it, because you, the scale of it is enormous, you know, there's a big impact on the part of the world that humans are taking. So if you, if you are going to do all our energy in wind and solar, simply a big part of the world is going to be used for energy production and it's not going to be normal nature. So the ecobanists say we have to concentrate it if you do it in nuclear. You can produce all the energy you need uh, on one island in front of the uh, of the coast and you can leave the rest to nature. So I think this is a very inspiring idea of the eco-modernist. Do you agree with like the earth warming it creates? Like because when it comes to warming events, there's high accounts of prosperity when it comes to human growth, like uh, more people um, in cold periods. It tends that you see the number of populations start to dwindle down and it seems like uh, very, very low, yeah. very, very low prosperity. So do you think a factor of why they worry about carbon emissions so much is that if the number of people keep increasing and the number of plant life keeps decreasing based on human factors, then when it does get to a point of we talk about carbon being good for plants, what happens if there's no plants left, then you have the earth warming and there's a very small percentage of plants because humans have increased and expanded over their territory. Well, you can, the, the number of people have always been restricted by the amount of food that we could produce. So you see over the hundred thousand of years that we've been living, you see almost a constant uh, um, uh, number of, of uh, humans uh, and when we uh, started to mechanize you know uh, to produce food you need power you need energy and you have a, a, a farmer and a horse that's the maximum power a person can produce so that limited the food production when we got fossil fuel they got they, they could have combines and tractors and one farmer could produce 10 to 100 times more food and then we got so much food that the world population uh, exploded. Uh, that's not, that's just simple the amount of food that's available. And there was no limit to the, the amount of food. So there's no limit to the, the growth of people. But now we see that if people reach a certain level of prosperity, 
there the birth numbers uh, starts to to dwindle and uh, the North America and Europe are actually decreasing. If you would take out immigration, our populations would be decreasing already. So if if the whole world reaches this um, level of prosperity, you will see a decrease. China is already decreasing. Uh, seriously, it's a problem there because of the, the remains of the one child policy. So you can see that um, there, if we manage to keep, to, to make everybody uh, wealthy enough, the world population growth will stop and will start to decline, which would be good for the world but you don't need to, to stop getting children. You know? We just need to make sure the Africans get enough money to, uh, to only have two children. You know? uh, so that's, and if you make energy more expensive, you keep people more poor and they'll produce more, more uh, offspring. And the same with uh, adapting to climate change. Now, if people are a little bit richer, they are a lot better um, situated to, um, to ad adapt to climate. So if you have, make them have very expensive energy, they stay poor and they cannot adapt to climate change. And if you don't, if you give them cheap fossil fuels, they will be a lot richer and they will be able to, you know, uh, build a dike and buy uh, air conditioning. So increase in wealth is very uh, important for adaptation of the poorer countries. And that's, uh, that's the, so I would say, have a fairer world and make sure that the African and uh, South American people can develop and the Asian people make sure they, they take of them, care of themselves. They will grow very, very fast in wealth. So if we have a wealthier world, the population growth will stop and we'll be perfectly able to adapt to any climate change that there will come because it's, it's just as possible that we are going to uh, dive into a, a very cool period from now on. If you look at the solar, um, uh, activity and you look at the past, then we see all the signs that we would go into a very cold period, which would be a, a dramatic for food production and for energy use. So we will need to adapt to climate in the future. If, if it gets hotter, that's the easy way of uh, adaptation. But if it gets colder, we'll have to adapt too, and that will be a lot harder. Uh, so let's, let's make sure everybody is rich enough to adapt to climate. That's a better policy than you know, now taking a huge part of our wealth into trying to, to decrease only 10% of the world's CO2 emissions. What, that's what Europe and, and America are doing now. I'm definitely all in on getting richer, I'll tell you that. What did you say? I said, I'm definitely all in on getting richer, I'll tell you that. Yeah, yeah, well, that's uh, that, that's the good thing. But I think in America, that's uh, the, the meaning that most people have. <laughs> that's, yeah, I was to say, that's a fantasy over here. Um, Theo, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. It's what I wanted to do was have a discussion about climate without it being so ramped up and charged on either side. And you did that for me and I appreciate it. Is there a place where people can find your website? Any links do you have? Twitter, anything? I think we'd be better um, show them to the Clintel website. Okay. Um, Clintel.org or Clintel.nl. The, the, they are now the climate realist organization that's um, uh, you know, tying all the organizations of the world together. And they have this World Climate Declaration, which is subscribed by more than a thousand experts, uh, amongst which hundreds of climate scientists who say uh, exactly what I told here. You, there's no visible climate crisis and there's no, nothing uh, to really worry about. And we should stop 
scaring children that they're going to uh, that the world is going to end and that their world will be worse than their parents because it looks very good for the for the coming generation the world is going to get a lot better and uh, there's nothing to fear about climate anyway so you the clientel.org website is thinking uh, i think is the the best one because my, most of my sites are in dutch and they don't. Uh... I know I couldn't read. I couldn't read your site at all. I was like, I, 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 I hope he just he can speak good English. And you do, you do. Yeah. yeah well, the, this uh, we have a translate button on the climategate.nl website, so you can read it in English. And Google Translate is not really bad. I, I have to say, uh, so you you could try to to look at them, but I think it's best to look at uh, at Clintel and to you know maybe uh, look a bit at the eco modernist uh, movement. Which has a lot of books. Schellenberg's book, the book of Stephen Koonin, Unsettled, very interesting. He was an alarmist too. He was the climate advisor of Obama, actually. So he was on the basis of the climate policy at the time. So I think uh, there's enough uh, sources in. Uh, if you if you start looking, you'll find what you want. I'll make sure I link it all in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting, and thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank.